0: Hello, my name is Garrison Lovely, and I'm not that interesting, but this is the most interesting people I know, conversations on science, ethics, and politics. Today's guest is Brianna Rennox. Brianna is an immigration lawyer and senior editor at Current Affairs Magazine. She works near the border in Dilly, Texas, helping prepare detained immigrant women for their asylum hearings. This is a job that requires you to ask people about the worst things that have ever happened to them, and if you fail, they may be deported to their death. Immigration has been in the news a lot recently, particularly the torturous conditions immigrants are being held in. Unfortunately, a lot of this coverage isn't properly contextualized, and there's a lot of misinformation about how our immigration system actually works. I've wanted to have Brianna on for a while because, as I tell her, she writes about immigration with more analytical and moral clarity than anyone else I've come across. We touch on a lot of it here, but I really encourage you to read her work on immigration that can be found in the show notes. On this episode, we cover Brianna's work as an immigration lawyer. How Clinton and Obama laid the groundwork for Trump's immigration policies. The push and pull factors driving immigration. America's role in stoking violence in Central America. The origins of MS-13 and Barrio 18. Trump's efforts to destroy the asylum process. Asylum claims in theory and in practice. The intensity of asking people to relive their worst experiences day in and day out. And what you can do to help. This was an intense episode, but I think it's really important stuff. And uh, Brian is doing great work, so I'm excited to give you Brianna Renick's. Brianna, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Oh, thanks for having me.
0: So let's just start off with uh, what you did today and how you got there.
1: Oh, as in like what I did like this particular day or just what I do with my li- daily life usually?
0: <laughs> I guess both. I was trying to be cute about it, but uh, both would be great.
1: <laughs> okay. Um. Well, my uh, my day job is um, that I work in a detention center. um. um detention centers, the sort of uh, acceptable legal phrase, I think of them as more like internment camps. Um, but I work um, at a facility um, about an hour from the Southern border, um, the uh, US-Mexico border, um, where mothers uh, who cross the border with children um, are detained after arriving um, in the US. Um, and so, you um, usually what I'm doing on a given day is trying to, um, prepare these families for interviews they're going to have with the asylum office, um, because they're in this sort of very high stakes moment in their, um, legal process where, um, they might have the opportunity to stay in the United States to fight their asylum claims, or they might be deported very rapidly. Um, so, um, yeah, so my kind of most days I am um, in this facility um, helping train volunteers um, and oversee staff to um, provide legal services to um, asylum-seeking families. Um, yeah, and how I got there, I guess I uh, um, I went to law school quite recently, um, started off in law school um, shortly after having done some uh, volunteer work and internships with immigration organizations. Um, And it wasn't an issue I had known very much about up until that point, because it hadn't touched my daily life very much. Um, But as I started to work with um, people who were sort of struggling in the immigration system, um, I realized how, um, what a disturbing bureaucracy it is. Um, And I feel that uh since that time there's a lot more public awareness around some of those issues and so um i it increasingly felt like uh, as i went through law school like my initial instinct that it was something i wanted to work on was um was a was a good one um given the way that um politics around immigration were developing um so
0: yeah. And, and so why do this instead of something like public defense, the more like conventional, you know, do-gooder post-law school career? Um,
1: I mean, I don't, I don't know that there's a sort of conventional do-gooder career. Um, and honestly, like some of this stuff is just serendipity. If I had been, you know, Right before law school, if I had happened to be interning with public defender organizations, maybe my um, uh, inclination would have gone that way. So some of it is just probably the luck of the timing of when I happened to um, be looking for public interest work and the kind of public interest work that was available at the time um, right before law school. Um, But I don't know. I think there's also something... um, uniquely compelling about um, immigration narratives, as indeed there are, they're all human narratives are compelling, but I think um, there's something um, kind of crazy to me about the fact that so much of um, human history is sort of about lauding these great sort of like quests and journeys and struggles um, and mythologizing them. And yet when people who have, actually done that in their daily lives, show up at our border and ask for help. Uh, We treat them like shit. Um, And I think that's a a very peculiar contradiction um, in sort of um, the way human beings generally uh, view immigration. Um, And so maybe there is like a little bit of sort of intellectual or narrative interest there, but mostly it's just, it happened to be an issue that, um, I stumbled upon where I saw a lot of suffering happening and I uh, wanted to be involved in trying to rectify that in some small way.
0: Yeah, I, I never thought about the whole like how we lionize these people that have done great quests. And it's hard to imagine something more endo- like harrowing in the modern day than going from Central America to you know the US border on foot facing everything along the way just to like get a better life for yourself and your family
1: yeah, no, I mean, people, um, I mean, apart from the things that people endure in like their countries of origin that are often driving them to flee, people, um, endure incredible suffering on the journey and they, you know, when they're bringing, you know, entire families with them, um, they're also trying to protect their children, um, from harm along the way, um, which adds a whole other dimension, um, And then, of course, by the time they get to our border, they then are (laughs) treated terribly by U.S. officials. So it doesn't even stop in Mexico. It continues here. Um, So, um, yeah, it's pretty bad.
0: Yeah, I I think like there seems to be a lot of confusion and abstraction and myth making around immigration in our politics. Uh, So I I really wanted to have you on both because you're doing amazing work, but also because you've written some of the most piercing analysis of, of what's actually happening and oh, so I think like if we could just try and like lay out uh, kind of like some history. So mm-hmm. like the history on our side, like how we've treated these things, you know, in past presidential administrations, and then, you know, a little bit of like what's happened in Mexico and Central America that's like leading so many people to, to want to leave. Mm-hmm. So I guess just like starting with like how were things done under Bill Clinton, Bush, Obama, and how does that contrast with how things are being done now under Trump?
1: Right, yeah, um, so it's a, it's it's a it's a long, complicated history, um but I think the sort of main takeaway is that some of the things that we see under Trump, I think especially in terms of um public rhetoric and the sort of uh, vehement sort of hatred and demonization of immigrants is somewhat new, but a lot of um the, um, a lot of the, the, the mistreatment of immigrants and also the, even for people who are not anti-immigration, the treating of immigration and immigrants as sort of a second-class issue and a second-class people, um, has been going on for a very long time. Um, so, um, I'm most familiar with the, the refugee context because that's what I work on. Um, so my focus is always a little bit on that because that's what I'm a little bit more knowledgeable about, Um, but, uh, essentially we, um, you know, we signed on in 1951 to the international refugee convention, which establishes certain obligations that we have to, um, people who are fleeing violence that falls under certain, um, somewhat restrictive, but also somewhat in, in a legal sense, um, expandable categories, um, and in 1980, we enshrined our obligations under the Refugee Convention into our domestic law. Um, and so um, after 1980, um, you know, a number of people came to the U.S. to um, seek asylum, um, which is a com- completely their legal right. Um, and it was kind of during the Clinton years, there started to be... Um, a lot of weaponized anxiety about asylum seekers, um, among other categories of immigrants as well. But there was this idea like, oh, well, like anybody can show up to the U.S. and just claim they want to apply for asylum and then they get a work permit and they could like stay here for a couple of years on a work permit, even though they don't have legitimate asylum claims. Um, So that, among other um, sort of nativist concerns that were prevalent um, in the mid-90s, led to the passage of this really terrible immigration bill in 1996 during the Clinton years um, that set in motion a lot of the problems that we're currently seeing. Um, In particular, um, it set up this uh, system of sort of rapid extrajudicial deportation called expedited removal, where if you come to the border, you uh, can, in effect, just be deported by um, a border patrol official without ever going in front of a judge or having any opportunity to make your claim. Um, and so this obviously has very large impacts for asylum seekers who are extremely traumatized, who usually have no legal right to enter the country beyond the sort of like right to seek asylum that's enshrined in um, in our laws. Um And so there are sort of some carve outs within the expedited removal system that are supposed to protect um, asylum seekers from summary deportation, but they're sort of inconsistently administered. They require a lot of like legal services on the ground to make people aware of their rights. Um, And so this is kind of an example of something that began under Clinton in a democratic, uh, democratically um, dominated administration um, that these sort of um scapegoating and fear around asylum seekers um, was already uh, very much present. And a lot of the sort of uh, players now, like Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer, were involved in those same debates. Um, and then so in the Bush years, we also saw a marked turn towards viewing immigration as a national security issue. So that's sort of when our um, immigration detention system started to ramp up a bit Um, Prior to that, it was quite unusual um, to detain immigrants unless there was some really special um, reason to do so. Like there was no assumption that just because you were in immigration proceedings that you needed to be kept locked up. Um, But that sort of started to change under the Bush years. Um, So there started to be more of an infrastructure for uh, large scale detention um, at the border. Um, But. It really became very systematized under Obama um, and in particular around um, 2014 um, when there was suddenly, um, you know, it's funny, it wasn't even an immigration, an increase in, in border crossings. It was actually a very low year for border crossings, but proportionally of the border crossings, there was a slightly larger number of unaccompanied children and family units that were coming. And the Obama administration could have chosen to respond to this in any number of ways. Um, but the way that they chose was to build large detention centers at the border, specifically to house children and families. Um, and so uh, the system that, that Trump inherited is one where the detention of all kinds of people, all kinds of asylum seekers, including children, has become extremely normalized. Um, And so Trump has sort of made that system more more vicious. He's been more um, open about considering, um, you know, asylum seeking children to be security threats. Uh, But at the same time, he very much is just proceeding um, along the same lines as the Obama administration. Um, And I think the total lack of um, perspective or contrition that the Obama administration has on this issue is extremely telling. Um, like you know, Obama's not spoken publicly about it, but like his few public officials who were involved in the decision making um at that time who have spoken out have very much presented it as something they had no choice but to do um, even though there you know there was no particular um security or other reason that would make the the mass detention of um you know you know a proportionally small number of people coming to the border, like tens of thousands, which relative to the U S population is, is very small. Um, so, um, that was probably a long rambling answer, um, but there is no, like I, kind I of a lot a of history there.
0: Question. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think, uh, and we'll, we'll come back to the what's happened in Central America and, and Mexico. Um, but I, I do think there's this conception that like, you know, Trump or Obama could have done no other than what they've done. And, you know, we don't have the capacity to handle, you know, all these families and, and people coming to the border. And, you know, some of your writing has really made it clear that like, this was a choice to detain people while they're seeking, waiting for their asylum uh, claims to be heard. And, you know, we could easily have just had people come to the border, say, I'm dec- like seeking asylum. And then they go settle throughout the country until their court dates are up. And, uh, you know, you know, most people make their court dates, right? They don't like actually duck on it, and they they try to mm-hmm. go through the process, and they get access to better legal represent, representation, and you know you obviate this problem in the first place. But you know it's in Trump's interest, or at least his perceived interest, to make conditions really bad, and make it seem like there's a crisis going on, and um, create like these awful news stories that will get back to people on the other end of uh, uh, the equation and not want to come in the first place.
1: Yeah, although it is interesting, um, you know, both Obama and Trump have conceived of these tactics at the border as deterrent measures. Um, And I, you know, I hesitate to do this framing because I do think that there are probably measures at the border that could be taken that would be egregious enough that people would stop coming to us to seek asylum. But the fact is that there has been like zero correlation between any like attempted deterrent measure at the border and like the number of border crossings. Um, Even this like sort of heinous deport, like deportation and detention machine has pretty much no effect on people's willingness to cross. Um, Which tells you something about, you know, the intensity of the push and pull factors, both, both from the perspective of violence, people are fleeing. And also the like, another big thing is just like the desire to like reunite with family members that are already here. Um, like, you know, if you thought you had like any kind of chance of getting, getting through to your family, of course you'd come like, um, and that makes total sense to me. Um, and there's kind of very, very little, like a a state can do to, to prevent like people from acting on those emotions. Um, nor should they do anything to prevent that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And so you alluded to it, but like, you know, I'm, I'm reminded, uh, when thinking about like what people are facing when they come here like thinking about what they're really fleeing from. And it's like this passage, this is obnoxious, but it's from infinite Jest, where, you know, it's like the person who kills himself is like a person standing on a high floor in a burning building. And when they jump, it's not that they don't fear the ground. It's just the flames are that much scarier. Mm -hmm. And that seems to be kind of the situation that we're, you know, seeing in some of these places in central America.
1: Yeah, no, for sure. Um, I think, I think that's very true. Um, And, and I mean, there is a spectrum of, of people who, who migrate. Um, There are many people fleeing violence. That's sort of more horrific than most average Americans could possibly imagine, except, you know, unless they've been sort of reading the news stories about it, I suppose. Um, There are other people who are also fleeing um, poverty or who are, you know, seeking opportunity, seeking adventure, um, I think that these are also legitimate reasons to migrate. Um, so while I think I often think that the needs of asylum seekers and people fleeing violence are, um, you know, do take precedence in most settings, just because I think that they're the people who most urgently need to migrate. Um, at the same time, I don't think, um, you know, I, I, I'm an open borders person and I don't think that you need to sort of pass a, a litmus test of like, well, how how bad is your life for you to like deserve to be able to come here? Um, so. Um, so there are. Yeah, so there are, there are certainly many people fleeing Central America who are sort of fleeing the burning building. Um, there are other people for whom it may not operate quite as starkly in that way, but um, I still think people have um, very legitimate reasons to want to to migrate.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I mean I I definitely want to come back to open borders. So I do want to start with like maybe the most sympathetic case and take a listener who's like very skeptical about open borders but might be like upset at the situation at the border right now and be, you know, open to ideas. So for people seeking asylum, we've already laid out that they're uh exercising a legal right to to do this. They're often declaring themselves and not trying to evade, you know, border patrol or law enforcement when they, when they come here. And could you speak to like you know how the conditions in um some some of central america got got to be the way they are and and um what role the United States has played in that
1: yeah, so i mean we um the u s has a very long history in central america um both in terms of um large um American corporations that operated there and in also um as um, you know, communist and leftist movements um, gained traction in Central America during the Cold War. Um, the U.S. having a a strong foreign policy um, interest in um, in sort of quashing um, those movements in Central America. Um, so, um, so the the three countries that are currently sending the most. Um, Asylum seekers to the southern border are um, Guatemala, El Salvador, and Honduras. Um, And both um, Guatemala and El Salvador have very recent histories of civil wars um, in which, you know, U.S. meddling played no small part. Um, These were um, countries where um, U.S. backed um, right wing regimes were engaged in. Um, conflicts with, um, you know, leftist insurgents, but also just sort of generalized terrorization of the population um, with the whole, the, the whole, uh, you know, you, uh, what's the phrase that you, um, you kind of kill the fish by poisoning the water. So you are sort of looking around for places that your enemies might hide and then terrorizing those communities. Um, And so in Guatemala and El Salvador, very, Uh, widespread terrorization of the civilian population um, during those civil conflicts. And Honduras at the same time didn't have a full-blown civil war, but we did use Honduras as um, our kind of base of military operations as we were, you know, engaging in um, uh, maneuvers in Nicaragua and elsewhere. Um, so, um, So there was a sort of long... Um, these were decades long conflicts, um, that produced a lot of refugees, many of whom came to the U S. Um, but at that time, um, in the sort of, um, while we were still sort of working out the framework of our, um, asylum system, uh, it was an extremely politicized process. And so there ended up being a situation where people who were fleeing, um, Communist regimes um, got asylum relatively easily and people who were fleeing right wing regimes did not. So to give an example, you know, Nicaragua and Guatemala both having uh, civil conflicts around the same time, violence being inflicted in uh, somewhat similar ways. The grant rate for Nicaraguan asylum seekers was something like 80 percent and the grant rate for Guatemalan asylum seekers was something like 2 percent. Wow. And so there was this huge, very politicized um, differential in the way that we were uh, granting asylum. And so what happened was we have a lot of refugees in the United States from Guatemala and El Salvador um, and Honduras um, who sort of had no ability to regularize their status because the the the, the deck was stacked so hard against them. Um, and in the process, um, a lot of, Um, children who were sort of war refugees during this time um, in places like LA ended up joining street gangs. um, That was sort of um, the option that was available. And then in the nineties, especially during that sort of like Clinton era crackdown on immigration that I was talking about um, a lot of um, those central Americans were deported back home. Many of whom who had either, um, you know, had not been in their home country since they were very small children, maybe didn't even remember having lived there before. Um, so you have this sort of large numbers of of gang members being deported um, back to Central America at a time when there's very little, um, you know, social, political infrastructure um, that's fixed. And there's sort of this... Um, then burgeoning of street gangs in Central America, um, which we now see the effects of today is that, you know, gangs like MS-13 and Barrio 18, which had their origins in the United States are now um, wielding a fair amount of um, like de facto political power in the territories that they control um, in these three countries. Um, That said, I mean, I think that often the gang violence is sort of the most like, viscerally awful and disturbing violence because of the, the sort of tactics that are used. Um, But at the same time, state violence also continues to be quite um, prevalent um, in these countries as well. And especially in like Honduras um, at the moment. Um, And sometimes there's a fixation on the gangs and on cracking down on the gangs that then distracts from the fact that um, in these countries, there's also Um, A lot of uh, repression of uh, civil movements, a lot of privatization um, and that are a lot of our economic and foreign policy decisions, in addition to our um, immigration policy that deported large numbers of people, that all of these things are sort of interacting together um, to create um, an environment that's unlivable for large numbers of people um, in Central America.
0: Yeah. And and so it's a situation where, you know, I think for humanitarian reasons and just because I think all people have, you know, an equal right to live a good life. You know, the United States should accept refugees from, you know, a sub-Saharan African country experiencing a civil war that let's imagine is completely unrelated to American foreign policy, even if that's not true. Um, I think there would be like an obligation to take those people simply because we can and because they have a right to a good life. But in this situation, it's like actually, (laughs) in many ways, our fault. These places are are just a disaster, and it still comes back to bite us because you know, like there is downside to having like violent gangs like MS-13 that are now, um, you know, active in the United States, and the American war on drugs has made Mexico like just an incredibly violent place, and there's direct relationship between how uh, severely we police ports of entry and how violent uh the fights for those you know control on the mexican side of the border become uh so like given the united states unique role in the world it's unique power it's just causing so much of this and it's just like incredibly perverse situation where you know ms13 then becomes like a trump talking point that helps him get to power in the first place
1: yeah yeah i know in the yeah, and MS13 o- occupies a very weird role in US discourse now because MS13 in, in the United States, you know, I'm not saying, you know, I, I don't mean to trivialize gang violence in the United States either, but it's it's very much a a a phenomenon that's pretty pretty heavily quashed by policing here. Um people, you know, have not been like murdered by MS13 at like very high rates in the united states um it's certainly not really very readily distinguishable from like other kinds of gang violence that exists in the u.s um in central america it's a very it's a much more serious danger um to a whole swath of the population and you know we're only even seeing here people who have like the, the wherewithal to be able to flee. There are plenty of people who are never going to, the poorest of the poor are never going to be able to flee these places. And so um, they get left behind. Um, and there's it's, it's just astonishing that you could use MS-13 to drum up support in the U.S. for all kinds of extremely uh, draconian anti-immigration policies and um, but MS-13 is actually committing much more violence, um, in places where people are trying to flee and there's so little public sympathy around that. Um, so yeah, it's quite, it's quite strange.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think so much of this just comes down to nationalism and preferencing the well-being of people who happen to be born in this country over the well-being of everybody else, particularly if they're poor and, you know, Latino, um, and it's the only way any of this makes sense. And it's not like the United States is unique in doing this, but given you know our, our role in the world, it's it's particularly disturbing.
1: Yeah, it is. It is really striking, though. I think to see like the most powerful and prosperous country in world history to date deploying so much force against such a small number of extremely poor people. Um, I, I, it, it, yeah, I guess, I guess nationalism, racism, how, how else do you explain like the, the vehemence of that reaction to, to something that, um, it takes a lot of work to even like conceptualize as a problem in practical terms, like immigration doesn't really cause problems. Like it's, it's people have to, people who are trying to like make the case that immigration is is bad have to crunch numbers like a thousand different ways to even come up with something that looks like a problem. Um, and, and yet it's, it's, it's become such a huge part of our, our, our national conversation. And I, I, I often, I don't mean to like, you know, draw the, like, I know that the sort of like Holocaust concentration camp comparison is, has, has been very fraught. And I, I don't mean to suggest like any kind of like, one-to-one equivalency between like different types of atrocities. But I do often think like the immigration problem is very much like the Jewish question. Like if you are asking it in that way, like it says something about you. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. So I I get very frustrated sometimes when I hear immigration talked about as a crisis or immigration talked about as a problem. um, Because I think that when even well-intentioned people are presupposing that the movement of people is inherently bad or inherently something that has to be solved um i think it says a lot about um kind of the way that people are viewing each other um and it's it's quite disturbing
0: yeah i mean the crisis is happening in the countries where people are coming from and those people are getting you know killed or hurt or threatened and it's happening far enough from our borders and our cameras that it's like okay in the eyes of many people um and i think that i mean When somebody gets deported, uh, especially people who are coming seeking asylum, you know, do you have any sense of like the odds that they will actually be harmed upon return?
1: Um, I mean, it's 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 something that's inherently quite difficult to track. Um, I actually a book a book showed up in the current affairs office the other day called Deported to Death, uh, which I should probably read um, because all the sort of depressing looking immigration books that come to us eventually get read by me um but there have been articles written about um you know people being deported back and then killed um i don't have any sort of hard figures about how often that happens um and i think sometimes too it's 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 a little bit tricky because so much of like seeking asylum is is a weird numbers game where you're supposed to prove that uh you would have a certain percentage chance of being persecuted and you have to time like when you leave really well, because if you leave like too soon before like bad enough things have happened, like you're going to lose. But if you wait too long, you might get killed before you leave. Um, So it's inherently putting people in this like completely absurd position where they have to like be predicting how much danger they're in. Um, And uh, yeah, so there's, 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 it's it's inherently difficult to measure and it's also difficult to predict on the front end. Like, are you the person who's going to get killed or not? Um,
0: yeah, that's I mean, so can we talk a little bit about like a credible fear interviews and and the work that you do in, in trying to prepare uh, mostly families for these?
1: Yeah, so I say this with some hesitation because um, a lot of stuff is changing. Right now. So some of the things that I'm about to describe may no longer be good law in the near future. I hope not, because I, there, there's a lot of stuff pending in the courts right now. Um, but in theory, the way credible fear interviews work is so I talked earlier about how under um, in 1996, under the Clinton administration, they established this procedure called expedited removal, which is where if you come to the border And you don't have documents that say you're a U.S. citizen or you have like a visa to enter or, you know, the government just decides not to honor your visa. um, They can put you in this super fast deportation process where you never go in front of a judge. You never have any opportunity to present a claim. Border Patrol just signs your deportation order and slaps you back. Um, So naturally, as you can imagine, this runs completely contrary to our obligations to asylum seekers. So they built in a sort of like safety valve into the expedited removal procedures, which was if you come to the border and you say, I'm afraid to go back to my country, um, the asylum office will schedule you for an interview, which is sort of like a screening interview where you're supposed to prove S- sort of a threshold eligibility for asylum. You don't have to prove your entire case right there, but you have to pr- like make a pretty significant showing that eventually if you were put in front of a judge, you could make an asylum claim that might succeed. Um, and the standards for asylum um, are extremely complicated. And the way that asylum laws are applied across the country um, very wildly um, such that your chances of success in different courts in different parts of the country can vary by like, you know, 90 percentage points. Um, mm. And so um, so people coming to the border who are extremely traumatized to in the case of the people I see have, you know, children with them. Um, you know, these these legal standards are are hard for lawyers to understand. And so they're very hard for people who don't speak English and are not familiar with their legal system to understand Um, And so at the particular detention center where I work, um, which is unusual um, for the rest of the country, um, we've been able to build up um, a relatively functional infrastructure to provide legal services to people before their credible fear interviews. And that's the screening interview um, that I've been talking about. Um, Mm -hmm. And part of that is because there are special... Um, protections that are for the present moment available for children that are not available for adults. There are limits on how long you can detain children. Um, And so um, if a family unit passes a credible fear interview, um, not only do they get to avoid being immediately deported, but they will actually get released from detention um, to go join their families or acquaintances or friends elsewhere in the U S and fight their cases outside of detention. Um, That looks quite different for adult asylum seekers who come without children um, because they can, um, A, there's much less likely to be legal services on the ground at the places where they're um, being subjected to these screening interviews. And also, even if they successfully pass that interview and are found to have a significant chance of winning asylum, many times that's not enough to get them released from detention and they can remain Detained for the entire duration of their legal proceedings, which basically destroys any chance that they would have to um, recruit a lawyer. Um, so, um, so even this sort of like safety valve system, um, when it's coupled with lack of legal services, when it's coupled with long-term detention, it's not really much of a safety valve. Um, and so, um, yeah, so it's 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 not a great. Not a great situation. And at the moment, the Trump administration is trying basically anything they can um, to even take away that limited protection that people have. They see the sort of asylum seeking process as a loophole um, in our immigration system rather than like a enshrined right, which is what it actually is in our legal regime. Um, And so like they're trying, you know, just this week, a they've expanded expedited removal to apply like across the entire country to anybody who's been here who can't prove that they've been here continuously for more than two years, which is crazy. Um, they've, they're trying to uh, take away asylum eligibility for anybody who passed through any other country on their way to the U S and didn't apply and didn't apply for and then lose asylum in that country, which again, that applies to literally everybody. Um, They've set up this program called the Remain in Mexico program on the border where people who want to apply for asylum can get slapped back into Mexico and forced to wait there without any access to lawyers. They set up this whole metering system at the border where they're not letting people through the ports of entry. So at this point, like, you know, the system is is pretty much being obstructed at every turn and the the minimal uh, due process rights that asylum seekers have under um, our existing system um, are just um, being torn to shreds um, at every turn. Um, and so uh, it's, it's, it's pretty bad.
0: <laughs> yeah. It's, it's frankly just, this is one of the more depressing topics along with climate change to, to read about <laughs> um, because it just seems like, I mean, people are being hurt now and, uh, I, you know, I was listening to a conservative radio show of Bill Bennett talking to the head of uh, the Center for Immigration Studies. Ugh. And they were, I just wanted to hear what the talking points were. And like, <laughs> I couldn't really get through it. I was getting too angry. Um, yeah. But they did talk about asylum as like, you know, this loophole and like, oh, you know, the real asylum seekers will be fine with being, you know, sent with waiting in Mexico because they know their their claim will be heard. And like, You know, it's not safe to be waiting at at a lot of the places where, you know, masses of people who are like known to be very vulnerable and not from that country are just sitting there. Um, So to act as if it's just like this totally okay thing is just ignoring the situation on the ground and uh, dooming people to violence and the threat of violence.
1: Yeah. Well, and apart from just the like staggering inhumanity of it all, it's very, it's always interesting to me the way, um, you know, asylum seekers are expected to be have like superhuman virtues that sort of transcend all circumstances. And I think this is really an evidence in a lot of commentators and even judges seem to have this idea that like, well, a real asylum seeker wouldn't need like a fancy lawyer to try and like help them make their claims because their claims would just be like self-evidently obvious um, to anybody who listened to them. And so, Um, you know, sometimes judges get mad when you have like a client's declaration that like kind of clearly was partly written by a lawyer because, you know, an asylum seeker shouldn't need a lawyer to like help them with their declaration, which is of course, like not the standard you apply to like any other person in any kind of legal proceeding, especially like, you know, can you imagine some like white collar criminal, like, uh, trying to like make their case without a, without a lawyer, um, you know, fact checking, like every single thing that they do, um. But, um, yeah, and the thing is, like, the I think there's also a real lack of public understanding about what asylum is, because I think in some people's imaginations, including perfectly well-intentioned people um, on maybe the left side of the spectrum, they think, well, you win an asylum claim by proving that you would be in danger of being killed if you went back to your country. Um But that's not what asylum is at all. You have to prove all kinds of very complicated things. And in particular, you have to prove that you fit into a particular category that's protected under asylum law. And so a really good example of like a case that people feel like should succeed but almost never succeeds is like if you had like a kid who was told to join a gang and at great personal risk to their life refused to join that gang and then fled the country after like they killed his family. um, That kid's not going to have an asylum claim. That's going to win in like most courts in the U S. Likewise, if you're like a woman and you are like, you know, you've been like raped by a gang member and you've like fled because he said that if like you don't like become his woman, he's going to like kill you and kill your family. Um, She's not going to have a claim in almost any court in the U S Um, And that's because of the way that um, adjudicators are choosing to narrowly interpret a lot of these categories. Um, And so, you know, on the one hand, there's the like, you know, expecting asylum seekers to um, be sort of superhumans. And then also the fact that the legal standards, as they're interpreted by a lot of judges Uh, don't even allow for the protection of a lot of people that like an ordinary person would like conventionally consider to be like sympathetic or virtuous. Um, So it's kind of a lose lose all around.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it seems like a lot of the people who are like immigration hardliners or even just like law and order types uh, have this idea of the system being like fair or you know, humane and it's like, Oh, we'll just get in line. like do things the legal way, but you know, what's clear from reading your work and just, you know, listening to you talk about this is that like, it's clearly not set up with the best interests of people trying to be safe and and come here in mind. No. Um, And and that, that wasn't limited to, to just Trump, like Obama deported, you know, hundreds of thousands, I I think actually millions of people over the course of his presidency. And, you know, it's gotta be the case that some of those people were, you know, persecuted upon returning to their countries. Um, Yeah. So yeah, it's just I don't know. I, I frankly don't understand how you do this day in and day out and and don't lose your mind.
1: <laughs> well, we'll give it time. Um, well, I mean, I'm able to do it honestly just because. Um, I mean, this is a tough job for sure, but it has a way of attracting um, really good people. So all all the people that I work with at my job, my my coworkers are truly astonishing human beings and then i also get to see like the sort of um resilience um and yeah truly impressive strength of of many of the many all of the people who who are who are coming to our border um who are all very you know very ordinary people but also not not ordinary at all um and and so that that helps me but that said like this this work does take a toll on you, both from the perspective of, you know, you hear about you get used to hearing about like violence all the time, like all the time. But then also there's just I think, honestly, the more disturbing even thing for me, even in this job has been just seeing the way um, this system uh, just sort of grinds people up, both the people The immigrants who are caught in immigration proceedings and also the sort of bureaucrats and adjudicators who work in the system, they all become very bad, bad people, um, maybe even without wanting to be um, because it encourages you to 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 dehumanize people. Um, And so that that's disturbing to see. And I think it's also tough because. The immigration system is so, so complicated and it's so, so hard to explain to people what's going on and so hard to um, get past the, the strange and unhelpful misconceptions that people have. So a real like very low moment for me recently was um, when there was suddenly all this um, public outrage around the conditions in the border holding cells which I was quite happy about in the sense that I'm glad that people are paying attention to this issue even though the timing's a little strange because most of the conditions people were complaining about are conditions that have existed since you know the Obama years and probably earlier um very well documented um but at the same time good that people were 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 upset and angry about um you know treating human beings in that way but then for the the sort of political response to be to pass a 4.5 billion bill, dollar bill giving incredible amounts of money to DHS and the military, um, and um, and the Office of Refugee Resettlement, um, was just so, so, so disturbing and disheartening because if that's if that's what we get for a really large mobilization of public outrage is something that's a, a response that's actually just giving more power to the people who are, who are doing the crimes. Um, you know, it's, it's then hard to see like what advocacy strategy would even work. Like, I I honestly don't know, like everything seems to backfire.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, Trump is in many ways incompetent and a buffoon. Um, But on this, and it it seems to be like Stephen Miller driving a lot of this, like they really are deliberately trying to do things. And it seems like some of it is having the intended effect of like making this, um, you know, there's some polling on like immigration recently where like overwhelming majorities of of Americans opposed decriminalizing uh, border crossings. And some like small majority of the country supported the mass deportations that were scheduled to happen this past weekend. Um, granted the way the question was asked was like mm-hmm. a little bit, uh, misleading because other people also like 80% of Americans also support, you know, giving people a legal status, sorry, legal status, if they've been here and have no other, uh, criminal record. And so there's like a lot of inconsistency, but, uh, it's just, I don't think people look into the details as, as you mentioned, and it's just so complicated. And some people are just like, can't see the straight line between, you know, conscious decisions made by Trump and his advisors and like the suffering of, of children, um, in cages, but yeah, I I don't know. It's, it's very frustrating, but I, I kind of wanted to hear about, uh, the firsthand experience you've had working with, um, you know, people seeking these claims and like what, what work you specifically do to help prepare them?
1: Yeah. So, um, so the system that we have at the place where I work, um, and I should just mention, as a necessary disclaimer, that um, everything I'm saying here are my personal opinions, and not the opinions of my organization. <laughs> but, um, sure. yeah. yeah. So the the detention center where I work um, has a sort of innovative system for providing legal services um, that was pioneered back when the first family detention center was was opened um, in the Obama years. Um, that detention center, Artesia, has since closed, but. The, the system was then transferred to the new family detention center that was immediately opened after that, which is in Dilly, Texas. Um, and so what we do is we have um, sort of a skeleton crew of permanent employees here. Um, I say skeleton crew, although I think we have about 10 employees now, which is more than we've ever had. Um, and what we do is we have every week um, volunteers come um from various parts of the country um some of whom are lawyers but many of whom are not um and we train them um on asylum law and on the standards that are going to be applied at these interviews um and then basically what we do is we have volunteers sit down with every single uh family that is scheduled for an interview to talk with them about their claim to sort of you know, as necessary, do like fact gathering, calls to families, evidence gathering, anything we can to make their claims as strong as they can be. Um, I now am more kind of like on the supervisory side of that, so I'm usually like someone who is uh, troubleshooting um, different case theories as they come up um, and trying to figure out um, what kind of a legal claim someone might have based on the facts uh, that we know about their um, their lives. Um, because as, as I said, the standards for asylum are quite complicated. And what that sometimes means is that the sort of trauma that's tops on someone's brain, however bad it is, might not be actually something that gives them their strongest legal claim. And so it might be something else bad that's happened to them that they didn't even like uh, think mattered um, that actually gives them a stronger legal claim. And so there's kind of a lot of work that goes into that. Um, so I'm sort of talking back to back with like lots of different um, volunteers um, who are working on these cases um, and trying to provide uh, guidance on how to um, develop their legal claims. And then um, our families go to their interviews at this point, although that may this may change under a lot of the <laughs> new shit that's being thrown at us. Most families actually, when they actually have been educated about the law, Um, and their rights do pretty damn well at the interview, and they manage to pass their interviews. Um, The other main job that I have, though, is when people don't succeed in their interviews, um, they uh, are in danger of being deported very quickly. And so I usually end up uh, working a lot more intensively with those families who are kind of on the verge of deportation, because they do have some Options to try and get a new interview or try to get um, their negative decision changed. Um, and so usually I'm sort of working to try to figure out um, how to do that. Um, so, um, so that's sort of the broad outline of the kind of work uh, that we're doing. Um, but it does sort of, the sort of volunteer system Serves a couple of functions. One is just simply that we don't have uh, the manpower to provide legal services to all these people with our just regular staff, and the other thing is that this uh, this work is pretty traumatizing. And if you have it just be us week in and week out, like everybody here would just go insane. And so we need like new people to come in every week and absorb some of that trauma for us um, and like kind of do some of that work for us um, to give us like a little bit of breathing space from it um, such, such as it is, there's not a huge amount of breathing space. Um, but these are, these are hard stories to, to hear every day. And it's also hard to sit every time you sit down with a new person to wonder like, is this one of the ones that's going to get deported? Um and to try to like build rapport with someone under that kind of terrifying shadow of like if i fail at this like this person could die their kid could die or at very least be sort of like sent back to a place that they uh went to a lot of um incredible effort to flee um and so it's it's uh it's 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 uh, kind of a high stress work environment in many ways um i guess you yeah. say <laughs>
0: No, that's, that's just like, every time I think about the details of it and uh, your piece waiting for the holy infant of Atocha, am I saying that correctly? Yeah. Um, yeah, that, it's just an incredible read and uh, I'll link to it in the show notes, but really goes into more detail about like, you know, what it is that you're hearing day to day. And uh, I, you know, I think it's incredible that you're, that you're doing that work. Um, and so you said that people can volunteer at daily,
1: Yes. Um, I think it was funny. So Um, when I, I first came to Dilley as a volunteer, um, when I was still in law school, I came for, I came for a couple summers. And at that time, you know, when we were recruiting volunteers, like you might have, you know, like, you know, five volunteers a week. Um, after the family separation crisis, there was a lot more interest in coming to Dilley. And so like, we now are booked up with like 30 volunteers a week for like the next year. (laughs) Um, So, um, so we sure we have no shortage of, of people who are very generously um, giving their, their, their time and effort uh, to come help us um, which is, which is really wonderful. Um, But uh, yeah, that's, yeah, but oh, that's I also awesome hear
0: uh is is there still a need for for people?
1: So not so there's not a particular need for people to physically come to Dilly right now. Um just because we all, we have capacity limits on our end as well like um ICE does not allow us to have more than a certain number of people uh come and so you know we can't even like you know expand our capacity beyond uh what we've already booked. Um but that said like I do feel it's really important for people to become involved in this issue, not just like on Twitter, on, you know, on Facebook, but in real life. Um, And there are ways to do that in your own communities because the reality is like, yes, there are really bad detention centers on the border, but there's a detention center like near you right now, um, wherever you live. And like, there have been some really great protests that have been happening recently protests of the kind where people are sort of like disrupting, Operations and like sort of ingress and egress into the detention centers. I think that would be great to see more of that. I also think another thing that's really, really uh, important that people could do, um, kind of according to their schedules. If, if well, you know, people who have busy work schedules are always limited. Um, But immigration courts are open to the public. You can just go to immigration court and like walk into virtually any hearing that hasn't been specifically like closed and just sit down and like watch what happens. Um, And I think, um, I think it's really, really important for people to do that um, for a variety of reasons. One is that it simply increases people's knowledge about what immigration court is like um, and the sort of bullshit that happens there. Um, and so it's it's educational to see that. And I also think that um, it's important for um, judges in those courts and other court personnel to know that they're being watched um, by the public. Um, I think that it would be useful to have more of that um, because courts can be very tyrannical places when um, there's nobody watching, um, even when there are people watching, but more so when there's no one watching and. Um, And so I think that that is something that I really would love to see more people do. Um, And I think I think the court watch thing also really another important function that it serves um, is that um, you know there are the immigration system is just like a you know atrocities upon atrocities you know um, detention raids. Surveillance within communities. But there's sort of this idea that people have that, like, well, if you stripped all of that away and just sort of had like an orderly legal process, things would probably be extremely fair and fine. Um, and that's r- unfortunately not true. Um, I think even if you took away the worst and most inhumane excesses of what happens outside of the courtroom, you would still end up in a situation where if you sit down in immigration court, you are going to see. Like legal standards applied in a way that are unfathomable, unfathomable to most human beings, and people being ordered deported under all kinds of really disturbing situations. And so, as long as we have this system in place for sort of sifting through who deserves to be here and who doesn't, and sort of using the might of the state to f- physically remove people who don't deserve to be here or who don't fit under the right legal box, as long as you still have that, there's still going to be an incredible amount of suffering and injustice that comes out of our immigration system. And so that's something that, that you learn from watching court proceedings that, uh, so I think that that's really valuable.
0: Yeah, no, that's a lot of great stuff. And I'll, I'll find things to link to in the show notes. Um, I actually participated in one of the actions against the, uh, an ice facility in Elizabeth, New Jersey, which is only like a, uh, yeah. Never again action. Um, Oh, cool. Yeah.
1: Those have been great.
0: Yeah. We, we We bought a road and i I took an arrest uh with like thirty five other people and you know we shut it down for like an hour and a half, but mm-hmm. then that kind of like kicked off a wave across the country and culminated i mean it's still happening, but there was a very big action shutting down the you know headquarters in d c for mm-hmm. five hours and um you know a thousand people turned out, and uh people are you know putting their bodies on the line to to shut down the system and if Trump wins again, it's just like really disturbing to think um, where this could go, uh, cause where it is, is not acceptable.
1: Yeah. Well, I'm glad, I'm glad you, I'm glad you did that. Um, I, it's, it's given me, uh, given me some heart to see, um, people out there, as you said, willing to sort of like, um, risk risk or risk their personal safety to disrupt operations, um, at these places. Um, and I think that, you know, yeah, putting your body on the line is kind of the most powerful thing you can do in, in any, um, protest context. So I was really, I've been really happy to see that.
0: Yeah. So some of the most, uh, heartening things I've seen in the last few weeks, uh, were constituents of, uh, Ilhan Omar welcoming her back to, to the city. Um, when mm-hmm. she came back from DC and like with signs and singing about like how she was, you know, home and, and welcome there. Um, and then stories of just, you know, neighbors, uh, and friends protecting people from, uh, deportation and, and raids, yeah. uh, this past week.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I actually, I need to, I know there was some video that went out today that was apparently really moving. I have not had a, I saw it, but like the, the, the still of it, but have not had a chance to, to watch it. So, um, so I'm looking forward to, to watching that later.
0: Yeah. I mean, and I, I think like, it's easy to get down on America about a lot of this stuff, but I, I think the reality is that most people just don't appreciate what the you know, lived experience will be of the policies that they support in the abstract. And there are all these, you know, famous stories of people who are like, you know, they were married to an undocumented person and then like they voted for Trump and then they got deported or, you know, just like somebody who'd been a part of the town for 25 years got deported and that town voted for Trump and like, you know, they didn't want that to happen. Um, And that's the unfortunate reality of like, you know, when such a brutal Uh, piece of machinery that is like, you know, the state deportation immigration system being brought down on people who are not what people imagine to be the intended uh, recipients of that.
1: Yeah, no, that's totally true. And I do feel like in many ways, um, I think public opinion on this issue is extremely malleable, in part because like, if you're not an immigrant, or like, you know, in a, a family member of an immigrant, the immigration system is not going to affect your life. And so like all your ideas about it are like totally abstract and unconnected from anything. So it's like very comparatively easy to like move people's emotions around in different ways on those kinds of issues, um, which is both good and bad. Cause I think the issue that we run into now is like, in some ways the American public is more pro immigration than it's ever been. But the fact is like, You know, We have people in power who are extremely Motivated to do evil and also doing Evil is always easier than doing good It takes so much less effort um, Both emotionally and logistically Um, So Like so it takes It takes a lot more work To mobilize against that Um, And so You know we need people to not We're now in a position where we don't merely need people To be like you know neutral on immigration We need people to be like Willing to do a lot to uh help immigrants to like actually care about the issue and uh so when to see that happening when it does happen is is you know is is definitely cause cause for hope and I hope that we see more of that.
0: Yeah, yeah, I hope so too. Um well I know we're at time. Is there anything that you would like to to plug, recommend listeners check out that you haven't already mentioned?
1: Hmm. Um I don't think I have anything in particular to, to plug, um, other than just, uh, like I said, be to be on the lookout for like local actions you can get involved in, or to just on your own initiative, like go to immigration court, or you know see what an immigration activist organization in your area might might need from you. However, uh, mundane that might be, um, so. Yeah, I think I think that's kind of kind of all that I would plug.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I would plug uh, Never Again Action, which is what organized the the one yeah. and Elizabeth and and many across the country. Um, you can find them on Twitter with that handle. I think Never Again or org. I'll I'll link in the show notes and Movimiento uh, Cosecha is also doing good work on the immigration front and Brianna's writing on um, the immigration system primarily in current affairs but elsewhere as well is uh just how how i've learned anything about this topic and she just cuts through the bullshit and it's uh just really heartening to see somebody you know writing so clearly about a topic that's so important and uh dispelling all the you know abstraction that that goes into it to allow this kind of stuff to happen in the first place
1: well thanks that's really kind of you to say
0: (laughs) well uh, thank you so much for joining us today Brianna, and, and thanks for the great work
1: oh thanks so much for having me on
0: this has been The Most Interesting People I Know. If you enjoyed the show, please rate it on iTunes. I don't know why this matters, but every other podcast I listen to asks people to do this. Music is by me. Podcast design is by Jacob Browitz. I hope you enjoyed the show.